The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning. Thank you for joining me this morning. I'm Kate Ebner, and today I'm going to be talking with Patuxent Riverkeeper Fred Tutman. Fred was born and raised along the Patuxent River, as were seven generations of his ancestors before him. He founded Patuxent Riverkeeper in 2004, but before that, he operated an international professional media and mass communication business. He worked as a volunteer activist on the Patuxent for more than two decades until the momentum of his volunteer activity overcame his media career. I love that phrase. And the challenge of riverkeeping beckoned. Fred is the recipient of numerous awards and recognitions for his work on behalf of environmental causes and issues in Maryland. He also serves on a variety of boards, task forces, commissions related to the work of protecting the river and the natural environment. Among them, Fred serves on the board of the Environmental Integrity Project, which is a governor-appointed commissioner on the state's Patuxent River Commission. He is a government-appointed commissioner on the state's Patuxent River Commission and on the board of the Waterkeeper Alliance, which is the international group that licenses waterkeepers. Um, Fred serves as an adjunct instructor at the historic St. Mary's College of Maryland, where he teaches an upper-level course in environmental law and policy. Uh, When he's not doing all of these things, he is an avid kayaker and backpacker and helps to maintain the trails on the Appalachian Trail. I can certainly vouch for that, Fred, in terms of your kayaking, as I've um, I've seen you (laughs) on the river. So welcome to our show this morning, Fred. Thanks, Kate. Great to be here. I'm really glad that you are, and you know, I, I wrote about this in my newsletter last week, but I think that we first met, Fred, when um, the Nebo Company, my company, hosted a day of conversation on the shores of the Chesapeake, and you came and brought a perspective that I really haven't forgotten, so I'm really delighted that you're here today. We're going to have a chance to share some of what you see and what you know as the Patuxent Riverkeeper with our listeners. Um, I've given some background about you, Fred, and I really wanted to emphasize um, the breadth and depth of the work that you're doing. But your story is also very intriguing. You left a career in law when the call of the river just became too strong to withstand, for example. So <laughs> I want to pause here and invite you to tell us your story. You know, well, who are you? Th- to be clear, I, I left a career in law school. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't law such school. a okay. I really left law school to do this work. And um, was, it was dawning on me at the time that while I had wanted to change from uh, working in the media, because I thought we were spectators on world misery. We weren't doing much as, as journalists. Mm. 
except really kind of writing down, taking notes, taking pictures, and people were suffering around us. And I thought I wanted to get into the game, so I thought law school would at least allow me to engage some of the same public policy issues I'd been covering as a journalist, but maybe from a different side of the street, only to find that law school's full of people who really like television people are there to you know make as much money as they can eventually. And, uh, you know, I have a kind of a slightly um, a bird's-eye view of the world's problems. They'll argue each side of the problem, you know, um, interchangeably sometimes. So uh, I thought um, that, in a sense, riverkeeping was a lifeline. Like, here's something I can do where I can work with communities and feel like I'm making some contribution to the world, giving something back, and, and really get engaged in stuff that I do care about, which is clean air, clean water, uh, having a deeper sense of spiritual connection to the planet. So... Um, you know, I'm a Maryland guy, and I think there's some irony that I'm a watchdog uh, for the very same river I grew up uh, playing on as a boy. Um, you know, uh, kind of like a little Huck Finn dude running up and down the river <laughs> doing stuff. I'm sure my, my mother would want to have no knowledge of what stuff we were into <laughs> as kids running around there. I remember climbing a tree as a boy next to the river, and uh, my friend and I had found a shotgun shell. This kind of sounds like the movie Stand By Me, right? We found a shotgun <laughs> shell. How many rocks and boulders can we drop on this thing until it'll go off? <laughs> that was, <laughs> that's what amused us as kids along the banks of the river, you know, gigging fish and frogs and stuff, you know, and playing with shotgun shells. Go figure. <laughs> Yeah, what will you find along the banks of the river, I guess? You know, it's so, you know, your family actually uh, has lived along the banks of the Patuxent, I know, for seven generations, as, as the saying, as the phrase goes. But what does that mean to you to come from place to the degree that you do? Oh, I think place is the absolute bedrock of what environmentalism is for most folks. And it's as individual as fingerprints. We're all connected in some way to where we are, our local habitat. And I think this gets overlooked in the environmental community because we spend a lot of time trying to, quote, educate others to see place as we see it. Um, and that's futile. I think we have to celebrate place where and when we are, and we need to help communities celebrate their own sense of place and where we are. Um, and unfortunately, in America, you know, there's a huge disparity in place based on who you are economically, uh, ethnically, where you're situated kind of in the continuum of society. So I think that's one of the reasons that um, sometimes environmentalism doesn't connect nearly with a wide group of people as it could potentially, because I think we've uh, lost sight of the need to invoke place as the core value for why people port in to this uh, environmental stuff. A lot of folks aren't engaged, just not that interested beyond their recreational habits, their accustomed places. Um, yeah, you know, as you say that, I'm, I'm, I'm really understand what you're saying. I, I believe, but I want to make it even more clear um, for myself and for others. And that's, you know, when you, when we invoke place, or when we think about ourselves in the context of the place that we live, uh, what's, what's, how is that different than just recreating and going about our daily life? I think we're um, acknowledging and reflecting that we are a part of our surroundings. Um, I think in a consumer society where people buy stuff, and so environment is a commodity, I think people think of place as kind of fungible. If you don't like the place you are, you buy a better place. And the truth is, um, wherever you happen to be, I think, I think, this is just my, my take on it, nature um, and the world speaks to us, connects to us, if we're prepared to listen, if we're prepared to uh, savor those sunsets, and uh, feel the grass, you know, between our toes, 
um, and hear the rhythms of this planet, which are so nuanced and so poetic in, in some ways, you know. Um, before the show started, you and I were talking about the leaves changing, you know, and there's so many infinite varieties of the way in which the leaves change, and they might be different from where you are in uh, Chevy Chase and where I am right now in southern Prince George's County. Um, all those things are examples of how we ground ourselves to where we are. You know, thank you for explaining that. You know, one thing that you said as you were beginning to talk is um, that, you know, as, as a journalist or as someone attentive to the media perspective on things, you know, the, the, the storytelling aspect, you know, you said journalists are spectators on world misery, actually, sort of watching um, and versus rolling up your sleeves and really being a part. And you're now, as a riverkeeper, very much a part of um, making a difference for clean air, water. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about um, that instinct you had to get into it, you know, instead of talking about it or writing about it, to actually do it. You know, what, what, what compelled you? What kind of a decision was that? Well, actually, this was a huge leap for me career-wise. And, and there are some folks in my life who have never understood this transition that I made. I, I have um, uh, family members who I think initially saw this because uh, television was the family business for many years. I have many relatives involved in television. I think they saw it as a bit of um, a defection. Mm. And, uh, you know, I run into folks sometimes on airplanes now that I used to work with when I worked at CBS and, and at uh, CNN and places like that. And I get this flash of like, oh, I thought you died kind of on their faces. <laughs> and, and so they ask me what I'm up to and I tell them and then, then they know I've died <laughs> because it has kind of no synergy whatsoever with the former career. It doesn't have a lot of money attached to it. It's, um, it's really kind of macro because I do work closely with communities and I'm not working on a broad picture scale, you know, where my workmanship you know, is on network television that night. Um, you know, I work on projects, uh, used to work on projects in television that had a bigger budget in one day than my entire organizational budget has in a year <laughs> right now. Wow. And um, so for me, the turning point was in Argentina many, many years ago during the Falklands War, and I was a part of a throng of uh, reporters and others standing in front of the uh, Casa Rosada uh, the Pink Palace, and we were waiting for something, um, which is, you have to work in TV to kind of get that, you know, you arrive at work and there's a bulletin board sometimes, and they tell you what Joe Blow is going to say today. You know, hmm. so the president's going to come out, and they're going to tell you in advance what he's going to say. But, of course, we all have to hang around because it isn't news until he's actually said it. <laughs> but, we, but we know he's going to say it, or he or she. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we were standing in front of the Casa Rosada, and one of our number, I don't remember where she was from, um, fell to the ground, writhing in an epileptic fit. And we're all standing around sheepishly looking at each other because nobody um, is prepared to go to her aid because we might miss the shot. And if mm. we miss the shot, we're fired. And mm. it just, I was overcome with the sense that here was this human drama playing out at, at our feet, basically. And yes. the absurdity of us waiting for some dude to come out and tell us something that we've already were told at 7 o'clock that morning he's going to say anyhow, and, and just the unreality, um, almost the absurdity uh, mm -hmm. of this this predicament that we were in, uh, mm -hmm. it made no sense. It, it made me feel like I was a part of some kind of a charade. Um, hmm. Hmm. You know, in coaching, we would probably call that, um, this is good language for what you do, but we'd call that a watershed moment. <laughs> oh, good a mo one. You know, a moment where suddenly everything looks different, you know, where, yeah. where from then on you're, you begin to organize around something else. Um, so you actually founded... The Patuxent Riverkeeper organization, is that right? 
I did. I, I wanted to do this work so, so very badly. It was at a time in law school where I was starting to feel like maybe I'd made a wrong turn. I was enjoying mm-hmm. being in school, um, but I wasn't looking forward to doing the work um, of lawyers. I had been clerking for a state's attorney in the Washington area, and we were prosecuting drive-by shooters. And this was pretty bleak work. I mean, I realized that someone has to do this, but it was work I found um, uh, just spiritually scarring uh, in terms of the people that I met and interacted with and, you know, the felons that we brought to trial. And, you know, they take their um, uh, handcuffs off when they bring them into court, you know, so that uh, they don't look guilty. Right, mm-hmm. don't prejudice the jury, and I remember thinking this one guy walked in, and I thought, "Don't take those cuffs off." I know what that dude did. Uh, <laughs> I want to get uh, out of here because this cat unchained is, um, you know, that's bad stuff. Hmm. It, was, it wasn't hmm. making me feel good about my career track, but being outside um, and having the planet as a client um, seemed a lot uh, more appealing um, than officiating over, you know, people dividing the baby in half in a divorce proceeding or. prosecuting the drive-by shooters and other folks like that. Yeah, and and so I'm I'm curious because, you know, a lot of people um, feel the satisfaction with what they're doing. They want to make a big change like you did. Um, Not so many of them go ahead and found an organization that's doing exactly what they care about. So I'm I'm curious, like, what, why Riverkeeping? Um, I read the book, uh, The Riverkeepers, written by... um, um, uh, Bobby Kennedy and a gentleman uh, named uh, John Cronin, and it's it really kind of reads like a detective novel. It's all true, but it's just such a page turner about mm-hmm. the efforts to restore the Hudson River uh, mm-hmm. and the efforts made by the Hudson River uh, Fishermen's Association to really um, empower themselves to enforce the laws of the land. Um, instead of becoming eco terrorists, they became folks who who doggedly enforced the law and turned the tables for that watershed. And it was such an exciting story because I'd been working as a kind of a part-time activist and volunteering on watershed things, cleanups and things like that. And it was just, my eyes got wide, like, wow, you mean you can do this as a career? This isn't just uh, an afterthought that you do in your spare time. You get a T-shirt or a squeeze bottle or (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) some token or trinket mm -hmm. at the end of it. You know, your Mm -hmm. community service is done. This is something you could devote a life to. Um, I just had the sense that my neighborhood stuff related to watersheds um, issues was much bigger, and I was eager to play that on a bigger stage than just the block or the zip code that I was living in. Well, it's really a it's a it's a wonderful and and powerful example of uh, someone, I think, following his heart as as much as his his instincts. And we're going to take a break here in just a second, Fred, and we'll we'll come back. But when we come back, I'd really love for you to tell us more about the life of a riverkeeper and. Um, you know what the, what you what you actually do all day so we'll take a break and we'll be right back we're always talking business talk to an expert call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network do you want to take your organization to the next level the nebo company develops leaders teams and organizations to achieve their highest potential we provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. 
With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. Today I'm having a conversation with Patuxent Riverkeeper Fred Tutman. Fred is a very much a visionary leader whose environmental work has won him recognition in Maryland and beyond. And I often think that if the Lorax speaks for the trees in Dr. Seuss, it's Fred who's speaking for the water in Maryland and particularly for the Patuxent River. So before the break, Fred, you were telling us about um, your how you became uh, the Patuxent Riverkeeper and sort of the motivation for making the decision to found the Patuxent Riverkeeper organization and really turn to this work. I would love it if you could explain to us what your job involves. What's a typical week like for a, a riverkeeper? Well, since I started this work, it, it's been a seven-day-a-week, um, often 15-hour-a-day or more uh, task. It's a huge river. Um, it's uh, Maryland's longest and deepest intrastate river, meaning it starts and ends entirely in Maryland. Um, some people call the Patuxent the most studied river in America just because there's so much uh, scholarship that's gone into uh, analyzing its problems and trying to find out how to restore it. So it has kind of a bellwether status in terms of uh, Chesapeake Bay tributaries. But mm-hmm. my job is to make measurable differences in water quality, if I can. It's a lot in a one person's lifetime. But the way I go about doing this work is I scan government files for pollution problems. I try and turn up the heat in terms of getting regulators to intervene. Uh, where there are violators, I respond to citizen complaints. Um, I organize projects that will either improve water quality or widen the community of people working on those same aims. Um, I'm often on the river in a boat or um, on its banks, or I'm driving to meetings in one of my seven counties. Sometimes I'm in an airplane um, mm-hmm. surveying for pollution mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. Um, writing testimony, facilitating meetings, lobbying legislators, uh, suing polluters when we have to. Um, uh, mostly, I, I also guide river trips. I do a fair amount of that as well. I try to maintain some connection to the resource, and I think there's no better way to do that but than being in a boat uh, or being on its banks or being with other people. Um, refereeing disputes between sparring parties over natural resource issues. It's a pretty big slate of stuff, and that's part of what attracts me to the work is it's never the same. Um, it is challenging. I, I worked myself into the cardiac ward in the first year. And, and mm. I think I have some perspective now, and <laughs> I hope not yeah. to end up back there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you know, that's, that's, um, 
it is. It's, I mean, I, I said, I think the words before, breadth and depth. There's a lot of scope to this job, it sounds like. Um, can you tell us about a, a, a particular um, accomplishment that you're proud of in your time as the riverkeeper for the Patuxent? Well, there, there, there are, I guess, a number of them. Among them, um, I think we are parties to the largest wastewater treatment um, consent decree in Maryland history, uh, $350 million in uh, reparations and improvements uh, in wastewater uh, processing in the river from uh, one of its dischargers. Um, we were fundamental in uh, overhauling the state's approach to uh, stormwater management. Um, took us several years in the General Assembly and the legislature, and in some cases really fighting other environmental groups that had become, I think, complacent about the way in which stormwater, you know, water that runs off of construction sites and from urban places, uh, what environmentalists call non-point source pollution is what I mean by stormwater. It's the stuff that doesn't have a pipe, but it's uh, just part of what runs off of land into the waterways. And we were mm-hmm. really much the mm-hmm. architects, pretty much the architects for reforming um, the Stormwater Act of 2009, it's called. Um, we were really proud of some of our environmental justice work. We think we work for the underdogs. Um, and so we've done some uh, work with um, uh, beleaguered communities, you know, who are either in the way of somebody's pipeline or a project or mm-hmm. you know, investment-backed expectations. And to me, that's the richest work because the hands-on community-based stuff gives you a real context for what's happening not just with the waterway, but with the people who depend on it. Uh, that's great, great job satisfaction kind of work, you know. So, it's, so your, your work um, this is this is great for you to describe. I, I I love in my mind to put you in some kind of kayak and put you onto the river. But really, you're all over the place with uh, convening groups and uh, doing a work that sounds like a blend of advocacy, social justice, uh, community dialogue, stewardship of the environment, science, and research. I mean, it sounds like you're really doing quite a quite a mix. We're spread kind of thin for a river as big as we are. We couldn't do this work without a lot of volunteer help. Um, a lot of folks care as deeply about this river as, as we do. Um, you know, we have a tiny little staff, you know, you know, but I mean, the truth is, this is community building work. That's, that's the whole gig. I mean, we don't live forever. <laughs> yeah, to expect yeah. One organization to do all of this stuff, but it's work that's in the cracks. It's work that's not being done by the governmental parties. Um, it's connective in that it ties these counties and these separate communities together on some common ground or common water. Uh, and I think that's also a movement that I hope will live long beyond, you know, my tenure doing yes. this work. Yes. You know, um, as, we, as, as you're describing all of this, you keep bringing up this word community. And I think one of the messages that really stayed with me, Fred, from the first time that we met was your um, strong... Um, call to all of us who were in the room that day on the on the Chesapeake to not to separate the issues of the environment with the concerns of people and to really understand the relationship between co- communities living on riverbanks for example um, and, and what's actually happening in in that and your your comment then was I think similar to what you said earlier about the importance of of understanding place but can you bring that together for us as as, as I'm saying all of this I'm, I guess I'm turning it back over to you tell us more about how people in place together create an equation that can be a, a positive one well that's a boy that's a pretty pretty layered question um, I mean first of all um, I have to be clear that there are some egregious um, problems 
out there. Um, nationally, as well as in my river, we know that um, uh, communities that are um, socially and economically disadvantaged are more likely to get a toxic dump um, or a coal-burning power plant in their laps or some onerous, unwanted use that you would never find um, in the wealthier areas. So when we're talking about place, we're not all talking about the same place. Mm-hmm. And yet, within the environmental community, there's a general perception that if you're improving air and water and saving land, that everybody is a beneficiary. And it's very hard for me to maintain that point of view when I see the disparity between, you know, McMansions on the waterfront of my river and communities inside the Capitol Beltway that are a part of the watershed, too, that have streams running through their, you know, their uh, community that look more like sewers than waterways. Mm-hmm. That they're mm-hmm. kind of a part of the same uh, environment, that's true, but the dividends of it are not being experienced generally. The single most common question that people ask me in my work is why there are not more African Americans involved in this type of environmental work. You know, as an African American guy, maybe that's, uh, maybe I'm considered a bit of an anomaly. And what startles me is that I don't see that there's a uh, lack of uh, people of any color any ethnicity involved in this work, but we're invisible to each other. We're toiling in different realms. We're toiling in different places. And I think that gets overlooked by folks who react to the environment as though it's only raw nature. It's the places that we are uh, trying to protect, you know, that are um, where the the natural attributes are obvious. You know, waterfronts, uh, stands of trees, places like that. You know, nature exists in urban landscapes as well. Um, it's just not as obvious. And in some cases, those urban landscapes are places where the natural resource wealth has been stripped, you know, that over time it's been depleted. And, and so they have become, in some cases, less desirable places to live. So I feel like there is a role to be played with place and the environment that is a unifying role that gets us on the same page. And that's hard if people have a fixed idea. You know, the environment is just as I have experienced it, not as you have experienced it. We're busy as environmentalists sometimes trying to educate other people to see the environment our way, um, and that's impractical. You know, we don't share the same privilege, the same access, the same opportunities to experience raw nature. Uh, a buddy of mine who's an EJ or an environmental justice advocate said, you know, if we clean up the ghettos, um, everything else would kind of fall into place. We wouldn't have to worry so much. And uh, I'm really intrigued by that. I've been kind of scuffling with that in my head for several months since he said that to me a few months ago. You know, that's interesting. I see a lot of government subsidies being used to restore beachfront, waterfront areas. I hear rationales that uh, in a a bad economy that resources go further in areas that are um, relatively pristine. So I do have the general sense that there needs to be some reconciliation between the environmental values of the or environmental ethic of the culture of the society we live in and its willingness to give benefit to all in many. To me, that's a much more noble uh, movement than one that's just trying to protect the areas where folks who have money and privilege like to play, work, invest, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, well, you've given me a, a nuanced answer to my layered question. <laughs> so thank you very much for that. You know, I, I think about what you're saying, and I, what, I'm, what I'm hearing in part is that, um, it, that, that we each need to be able to reflect upon and tap into and care about the environment as we experience it, and that there's the, such disparity um, that often what gets addressed uh, has little to do with the experience of everyone. 
Um, and I'm also hearing you say that it's really interesting to think about how um, how place is um, experienced and how it can, uh, I believe you're saying, connect us to solving these issues rather than talking about the issues of the environment as in some way separate from the concerns of the people um, living in that place. And so, do I have it? Did I get it? I think, I think so, and, and I do think that place and identity are very closely intertwined, or at least who people think you are <laughs> based on where you are. Where you are, yeah, where you come from. About that. I mean, I'll, I'll be really blunt. We live in a culture where uh, a young African-American in a hoodie sets off an entire chain of circumstances and assumptions, and it's just poignant stuff. Uh, how about a young African-American guy in a kayak? <laughs> what are the implications of that? And what conclusions do people draw about who you are and where you belong based on that? So I, think they're, I think they're comparable questions for a society in which your identity says everything about your potential and where you can go comfortably and what kinds of things you can experience and whether you can get a grant <laughs> and whether anyone thinks your environment's worth saving over some other community's environment. These are very complicated issues, which I don't pretend to have the answer for. I think they're deliberative problems. They're problems that require communities to come together and, and deal with them. Back to this environmental justice solution of let's clean up the ghettos. We only have a minute, Fred, so this is going to be a real challenge. But after pondering this, where are you when you're thinking about whether this could really be the key? I think it is key because I do think the environment is connective, but only if we talk about everybody's environment, not just you know one one interest group's environment. And it's a great messaging opportunity for a community, environmental community that's worried about messaging. The substance Mm -hmm. is much more acute if you're talking about fulfilling needs, you know, resolving uh, dreams, not deferring dreams, but but you know, fulfilling them. This is great message stuff that we're not availing ourselves of nearly enough in the environmental community. We've got the best message in town. Why are we talking about only the science? Mm. As you say it, I really do get that sense of, uh, I know this isn't what you meant when you first said this phrase, but of working in the cracks, you know, in the seams. This approach kind of uh, works for the environment through, through dialogue um, that might be structured quite a different way. So we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, Fred, I want to invite you to share your vision. And I know that this is not just a vision for the river, but I I want to certainly hear your vision for the Patuxent. We'll be right back. This is Kate Ebner. I'm talking to Fred Tutman. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. What's really going on in Washington? 
Listen as two of Washington's most experienced insiders, Howard Marlowe and Michael Willis, divulge the strategies of the key players affecting legislation and policy matters every week on The Inner Loop. Unlike most talk shows, which feature hosts that have little to no experience working with the federal government, The Inner Loop is hosted by two professionals who actively work to influence federal policy on a daily basis. The Inner Loop is heard live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. This is Kate Ebner, your host, and I'm glad you're listening today. Fred Tutman is providing a perspective that we need to have but rarely find the opportunity to consider, and that's the role of communities in keeping our rivers, thinking about not just uh, environmental concerns, but actually the people in place and the way all of these things work together or don't, perhaps depending on where you, where you live, where you, what, where you stand in society. So we're having a, a rich conversation, and I want to give uh, you, Fred, the chance to talk a little bit with us about your vision of the future. But first I want to ask you, you know, um, for those listening, what do you wish everyone knew about um, the, the, the responsibility or the opportunity to work for Clean Watershed? I wish everyone knew how um, unloved some of our rivers have become. And it's probably true that rivers that don't have a, a big fundraising mass probably don't have river keepers on them. That, that implicit within this work is the necessary uh, side of having resources to do the work. And so that troubles me, that, that people do not understand sometimes that the government simply is not able to do adequately the work necessary to protect these rivers. Um, many regulators are much more afraid of being subpoenaed by a polluter than they are uh, of dead fish in the river. Uh, just the mm-hmm. dynamics of power and how that works in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it troubles me that we're not building enough critical mass amongst the citizens, amongst the policymakers and others, to really do proportional work that's likely to bring these rivers back. And we have to redouble our efforts, I think, to have a much more inclusive movement because that's where the body politic. Um, friends of mine have compared the need to the kind of energy that existed within the civil rights movement. And unfortunately, I think the environmental movement has become um, a little bouncier. We, we like positive messaging. Um, we are suspicious of struggle, I think. And, and I think of this work as fundamentally about dissent. I create what I call constructive anger. I don't mean that it's off the hook, but if people have to have a certain sense of outrage uh, about what's become of these fundamental resources that are life-affirming. Right? We can't live without clean air, clean water, and unspoiled land. And the loss of these things should uh, make people angry enough to act, uh, to act lawfully, to act civically and, and civilly. Um, so I, I wish people knew um, and understood that the positive, cheery messages that we hear sometimes about these are good politically, 
People get reelected on doing good things for the environment, whether they're really true or not. Um, large environmental organizations raise lots of money around positive messaging, and sometimes I get accused of being kind of uh, providing negative messaging. I try and call it like I see it and tell it like it is. I think you empower people by giving them the information they need to act, but mm-hmm. you lull them into complacency by telling them that everything is being done. You just need to send a check. <laughs> I don't think that's a real service. I don't think that's a good thing. So I wish people knew how much, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I loved how you said that some of our rivers are unloved, don't have the resources, don't have the vigilance, don't have the, the people looking after the place. Um, I think that's important for us to know. Um, you know, thinking about what you're saying, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm struck by how many times we wish that these troublesome problems were being taken care of by somebody else, um, or we're so overwhelmed potentially by the scope of the challenge that we slip into resignation and sort of a that's just the way it is outlook, you know. And so you said a really critical word, and that's act. So this constructive anger that causes us to act. And one of the things that's so impressive to me about the Patuxent 2020 plan, which is downloadable from your website, is that it really begins to lay out uh, who are the stakeholders and how can we take action. So we'll talk more about that. But let's go now, Fred, to um, to your vision. So this is, you know, in, in the Nebo world, right? We, when we say vision, we mean um, a detailed picture of a desired future, you know. So can you paint that picture for us? Yes, for for Patuxent Riverkeeper, I think that vision is of a involved and engaged network of citizen organizations and communities up and down the course of Maryland's longest and deepest intrastate river, where we're sharing knowledge and information and we're nurturing leadership within our ranks. We're raising the next generation of people to lead the cause to preserve these fundamental values, clean air, clean water, clean, unspoiled land. These are pretty bottom-line things. They're unequivocal. You, you cannot have temporized, somewhat clean water. It is, it is or it is not. Um, I think that vision is also of a compassionate environmental cause movement that cares as much about communities and people as it does about fish and turtles and all the other things. You know, I have this um, mental contest in my head about, if, you know, if we ran an advertisement or sent out a promotion and tried to raise resources to save turtles, but if we put out the same advertisement and tried to save, you know, young um, minority youth or restore their connection to the planet, who would raise more resources? Which cause? And I don't know if I want to know the answer to that. I, I feel have a feeling it may not come out the way I'd like it to be. So I think the bird's eye view that I ran away from in the media world, that, that kind of uh, above the fray kind of uh, objectivity, I think sometimes people have uh, begun to do that with the environment. And I'm all about it. My vision is reconnecting, putting those values back where people can, uh, like I said, it's individualist fingerprints, rediscover their own connection to these resources, which have such emotive and spiritual power. You know, regardless of whether you're a religious person or not, I think people have an ability to uh, connect with their creator, whoever the creator is to you, through so many vectors of nature, in raw nature. And I think that's so powerful. It's a birthright. Um, but I think that gets lost. So the vision is providing the tools and resources and the um, uh, connectivity that allows people to celebrate their connection uh, to the world, to the planet. 
pretty idealistic stuff, huh? <laughs> I'm happy to hear that from you, actually. <laughs> Given your level of pragmatism and constructive realism, I would say that that's a that's a that's a wonderful vision. It's a vision to get excited about, actually. To to um, to think about this compassionate participation, actually. You know, a word that comes up quite often, but not often enough in my mind, is stewardship. You know, I think this is probably a word that we need to make a, a fundamental of our American vocabulary today. You know, we are the stewards of resources of the earth and in our own lives and communities and regions. You know, what does stewardship mean to you, Fred? Well, I know it doesn't mean ownership. <laughs> I, I know that we belong to this planet not the other way around. I think stewardship is trying to protect and make something better, uh, not occupy it and deplete it and leave a mess for the next generation to clean up. Um, I, I think if um, bean counters and accountants ran the world, and you know, or merchants, for that matter, folks who just want to sell stuff, I think stewardship becomes something that's, again, fungible. We talked about it earlier, something you can buy and sell. Most of us invest in the very best environmental quality we can afford. I call it zip code environmentalism. Um, people say to me all the time, you know, if you if you really want clean air and clean water, go to Montana. You know, this is the Beltway. This is the <laughs> D.C. metro area. This is a different place for different reasons. But stewardship, I think, is that um, compact or connection or mutuality that exists between human individuals and their, I keep using the term creator, but I don't mean that in the sense of a deity. I mean mm-hmm. Mother Nature. You know, mm-hmm. as being part mm-hmm. of that continuum. Mm-hmm. I think that's the stewardship. It's that partnership. It's that handshake, that um, embrasure of being a part of the, the fishbowl. You're not looking through the glass at the fish. You're in there with them. You are a fish. So as you as you say that, you know, what what is it that that people can do? And you know, people who are listening who might be thinking, you know, I would like to stop looking through the glass. You know, what do you recommend? Well, I think it so happens that, that in my vision, um, the things that people must do are absolutely consistent with what good democracy consists of. Being engaged, asking tough questions of the people you elect, and electing tough people who will deliver uh, what this planet and what these uh, communities actually need. I think you have to be engaged at, at a level where you're well-informed about what's happening with your water quality and with the land use around you. And I realize these are not easy things to do in people who have busy lives and rush hour traffic and who are inundated with media messaging and other stuff going on. But it is the price of democracy. The price of democracy is engagement and participation and vigilance. Uh, was that Thomas Jefferson or Thomas Paine? I can't remember. One of the Thomases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Right? The price of democracy is vigilance. Well, the price of a clean environment is vigilance, and I assure you, communities that are well engaged have better livable quality than communities that are out to lunch on this stuff. Absolutely, the squeaky wheels are getting the grease. Uh, they're getting the investment in their watersheds to restore what has been taken away. And they manage to keep out, empowered communities manage to keep out onerous, unwanted use that others are busily trying to figure out ways to mitigate and offset and trade their bad environmental quality into somebody else's hood. Fred, if you had a million dollars to dedicate to the issues of the Patuxent, what would you do with it? Wow, gosh. Uh, It's like an Austin Powers moment. One million (laughs) dollars? Wow. I think I would redouble um, investment in ways to convene and bring communities together to solve, to deliberate. I do think deliberation is important. 
you know, we get people together and we preach to them. <laughs> That's not nearly enough. We need their participation in solving common problems. Um, and culturally, I see have seen more of that when I lived in New England. You know, the New England town meetings where people get real hot and they mm-hmm. go at it, but they walk out of there and they're still a community. The mm-hmm. D.C. area where I work uh, has lost that, or if they ever had it, uh, that tradition. We get together, we pass out brochures, uh, people talk for three minutes in a mic, and nothing's resolved and nothing's settled, and nobody took notes. <laughs> yeah, the so, you would, so you would really work on convening communities to have these conversations and to work together. It's about to the s- only thing people fight for, I think, is community when it's threatened. But some folks have lost community. You know, yeah. they, they live where they yeah. can afford, or they live where the job was, or where the best schools are. But that doesn't mean they connect with what's around them. I think this is so fundamental. I mean, I, I, this is something I'm going to continue to think about long after this conversation has, has come to a close. You know, we just have another minute before um, our, our final break. But, you know, could you just give us a sense, um, you know, this word about convening people, about community? Um, collaboration is something that I believe modern leaders need to be able to, to do and understand. It's not that easy, um, yet it's so important. Can you tell us how collaboration works in your world? Well, I'm all about finding um, functional collaborations. I think there are a lot of dysfunctional ones that we shouldn't be following. To me, functional collaborations are ones that have mutuality, benefit for all participants. And one requirement that has to be there, one key is that they have to be, there has to be good faith. So, you know, sometimes environmentalists take money from uh, coal-burning power plants and polluters, and I believe there's no synergy whatsoever. There's greenwashing. Um, you know, the saying, um, the only thing about tainted money is they're tainted enough of it. And <laughs> those are really bad collaborations um, mm-hmm. in a movement that I think is uh, inherently peaceful. So collaboration intuitively feels like a really good thing. We'd much rather partner uh, than take someone to court. The essence of that partnership has to be that mutual uh, mutuality. Um, it's a bad collaboration if someone has the complete and utter upper hand. That again, that mutuality isn't there. That collaboration in that context has become a cop out. We're just getting along. We're just uh, reinstitutionalizing these problems in order to keep the peace, or to keep our funding, or to uh, avoid um, uh, having people think that we're negative. Uh, I made the correlation earlier about civil rights or the uh, the, uh, the uh, c- comparison, and I think what the civil rights movement has and does have still is that sense that there's dissent attached to what we're doing. We're trying to change things to make them better, um, not just take the edges off of it. You know, if you think that picking up trash is the most important problem facing your community. Um, Probably you live in a really nice place already, and so there's not a lot of point. synergy to be found partnering with folks who have a different slice. You know, I think that's a an excellent point. We're going to take a break right now. My guest is Fred Tutman, Patuxent Riverkeeper. I'm Kate Ebner, and you're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. 
We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've been talking with Fred Tutman, who's given us a fascinating perspective about not only the Patuxent, but about our communities and how we can and must get involved wherever we are, whatever part of the world we're living and working in uh, with what's happening around us. Um, As we move into the final segment of this hour, Fred, um, I'd love it if you could just give us a sense of what you see as the top challenges faced by the Patuxent River at this time. Well, certainly, I think a top challenge is, again, getting people engaged. It's a lot of momentum to overcome when people are certainly, and rightfully so, they're preoccupied with their own lives, but there's got to be room to protect the basis for having a healthy and productive life. We're saving watersheds and food sheds and idea sheds. There's so many different sheds that overlap in terms of preserving uh, livable, sustainable communities. And we do need to look ahead and to think not just what, how to fix the problems that have been created by old practices, but how we're going to sustain and improve and protect uh, life and the ecosystems going forward. Um, privatization of natural resources is a huge, huge problem that's lurking under the surface. I alluded to it earlier, but, but uh, mitigation and offsetting and trading of natural resources creates a privatized interest in those things. And uh, frankly, the folks who get the best environmental quality would be the folks with the most money and the most power. And that's a horrible, horrible trend. Just not something that's consistent with stewardship by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but as a balance sheet transaction, it looks kind of good. Like, oh, just, just move stuff around. You know, We'll make net benefits by just moving stuff around. Not a good idea. Not, not mm-hmm. a good trend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know... Um I wanted I want to talk about something that you and I once spoke about um, with our friend uh, Jan Kierce, and we were really talking about this piece of your interest that has to do with creating that uh, you know engaging people as you said before engaging communities, but doing it in a way that that taps into that spiritual connection that people have with each other and with place. And so we talked about actually, if you recall this, um, creating a revival. Mm-hmm. for the river. And I'd love to just dream together with you on that idea for a minute. Um, when you think about hosting or convening a revival for the Patuxent, what would that look like? Oh, that would be so... What's such a great party? That would be great to have <laughs> a stage and to have um, an audience and an opportunity to connect people to the environment through the arts, through music and poetry, through, through song and art, um, 
you know, nature and the planet inspires people at such a fundamental level. I mean, you know, we could rattle off a bunch of songs that are embedded in everybody's <laughs> psyche. You know, Moon River, Shenandoah, I mean, the, you know, the mm-hmm. list goes on of all these great associations that people have. And I do think that celebrating people's muse, people's spiritual connection, the window to that is through the arts. Um, I think that's a way to really pull folks together and get them psyched up about it. I think lecturing to them <laughs> about, uh, you know, um, a totem and maximum daily loads and nutrient management and all the uh, great science stuff that is also a part of the environmental movement, I think that sucks the life <laughs> out of such rich subject matter. The storytelling that is possible about the environment provides such a context for people to appreciate what is wonderful, not only about the planet, but about our connection to the planet. You know, I think people think that Native American cultures kind of had a real window on that, but that's not the only cultural tradition that has that. We all, you know, um, American uh, Appalachia, you know, there's so many different vectors, so many different ways um, and uh, traditions through which people have celebrated the environment. And I would love to find a forum to celebrate that on a different level. People would just have a ball with that. I know I would. Wouldn't you? I would. I really yeah. would. <laughs> We've got to somehow find the the means to make this party happen. This is this sounds like a wonderful and and coming together. You know, let's imagine for a moment that this is on the riverbanks or it's within within. You know, you can go to see the river while you're actually participating in this. Um, you know, music, poetry, art. You said, um, what? Who would you like to see there? I would love to see a rainbow of, of people because I also think that's the other potential of using the arts is that it's cross-cultural, it crosses uh, economic boundaries, you know, who doesn't dig music? You know, poetry might seem a little uh, parochial to some people, but I think prose and well-spoken words. And, you know, the other day I was driving downtown, I passed the, uh, one of the Shakespeare theaters, and I think, isn't this cool? Here's a guy that wrote some stuff, what, four or five hundred years ago, and people are still sold out checking this mm. stuff out. I mean, that's amazing, the impact that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that the spoken word can have on people. So, yeah, I think um, I, I drew on tent revivals because I remember them as a boy. And if you strip, strip the religious content out and replaced it with environmental content, it surely would not sound like a nature lecture. <laughs> it would have a very different yeah, sound, shape, taste, <laughs> touch. And, and I think it could be very compelling. You could get people up out of their chairs, and that's what we need. We need people up out of their chairs and on their feet, and they want to do something and feel something about the environment. And that's the way, I think, to channel that energy in a particularly productive way. Oh, I love it. Now, that's, a, that's, that's another way of describing your vision, and I just love hearing that detail. And you know what occurs to me, Fred, as I'm listening to you, is that you are um, all at once both one of the most practical and action-oriented people I've ever known, and also one of the most um, idealistic and imaginative <laughs> thinkers. You seem to blend this idealism with this pragmatism in a very, in a very uh, powerful way. I'm curious, are all river keepers like this? Well, you know, it's funny you should ask. Um, it's recently, uh, I did a poll of birthdays of, uh, of river keepers in the Chesapeake area, and most of them were Pisces. <laughs> really? <laughs> Draw what you want from that, whether you follow astrology or not. And I don't really, but I just thought it was kind of amusing. Is you have these totally impractical people who drive everybody else around them nuts. <laughs> yep. But we get things done. I think that's, the you know, with us comes all the baggage that is, uh, you know, uh, that comes with us, but... I think we get things done. We're great. I think we're a powerful movement 
because we have a heart about the environment. Yes. And, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, that in your first year having a cardiac arrest and having your heart really overtaxed in a way, um, it's probably not entirely fair to attribute it to the heart work that you're doing here. But I'm curious, how does a riverkeeper sustain in light of the complexity of these challenges? What, what do riverkeepers need? You know, a friend of mine who passed away, quite a musician, Tom Wisner, some people called him the bard of the bay. He was a guitar-playing folk singer who played with the likes of Pete Seeger and others. And he passed away a couple of years ago. And Tom and I used to get together, and we'd be on Tom Tom sitting next to the river and do these drum circles till the wee hours. And Tom would always say to me, the way you keep your balance, you keep your center in this work, in general, in life, is you go and talk to her. And what he meant was you go and talk to the river. You go and you open your heart, and you stand next to the river, and you let that river flow through you and around you, and you smell the coffee. And I think mm-hmm. that's key. You know, when things are not going my way and I just need to find some perspective, I get in that kayak or I go down to the river or I walk along its banks, and it's a renewal. And, and that's what's so wonderful about the environment. It's a renewal, a source of renewal. You know, my guest today is Fred Tutman. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. And Fred, as we come to the end of our hour, my last question is where can people go to learn more about you and your work if they want to follow up on something that they've heard here today? Um, you can certainly go to our website at uh, www.paxriverkeeper.org. Um, you can get on our mailing list at that website. I love to engage and talk to communities, preferably in my watershed, but sometimes I go beyond it. So I'd be happy to come and talk to folks who will want to talk about these subjects, want to talk about, explore these subjects. I learn as much, I gather as much from those talks as I, as I deliver. Um, Support your local riverkeeper. There are lots of them around. I'm not the only one in, in, in Dodge. Um, those are the easy ways. Volunteer, participate. There's lots of stuff. We have a three-ring circus of things you can do uh, if you're on our, uh, on, our line, on our communication lines. As far as Good. Well, I, I think that that is uh, – I, I, I hope people will go, and I hope uh, – we didn't get to talk much about the Patuxent 2020 plan, but take a look at it, listeners. You know, Download it. Take a look because here is a, a vision and a plan. And we're going to end our hour right now, Fred, but I want to say thank you for joining me. It's really been a pleasure and an honor. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for the forum. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.